Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I wanted to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. We are so excited that you have chosen to listen and join with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. And we know that God is doing amazing things in our community, and I am blown away at how many people have told me that Renaissance has provided a place for them to rediscover Jesus. It's given them a caring church family to be a part of, and has helped to transform their lives. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged, helped, and strengthened because of what's happening here at Renaissance, then I'd like to ask you to become an investor in what God is doing in our city. And here's one way that you can do that. Go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them. Enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for being a part of this community. Welcome to Renaissance. Thanks for coming. Glad, glad you're here. If this is your first time, we really are glad you're here, and, and we want to thank you for coming. I want to say hello to everyone in the overflow room. No hello back from them either. I see a theme going on amongst us today, but thank you for sitting in the overflow if that's where you are today. And, and if you are new with us, you may not know that every Sunday, something we do together is study the Bible, and we want to do this every week because we believe it will teach us more about who God is. That's why we gather together, because we want to learn and understand who Jesus is. In fact, all over the world today, people are doing this very same thing. They're gathering together in rooms much like this, some bigger, some smaller. Some people are even gathering in homes, and they're studying the Bible together because we believe that from the pages of the Bible, we can receive encouragement. We, we can receive help and wisdom. I, I bet if we were to poll the room, some of us would admit that, that times in life feel difficult sometimes. And some of us would say that, that there are moments when we need encouraged to keep going. And, and we need to be reminded that we shouldn't give up. And we need to be told that life is, in fact, worth living. And it's worth living because of Jesus, and we learn and understand that from the pages of the Bible. For 2,000 years, people have gathered together in churches to study the pages of this book. And before then, the history of a nation called Israel, they would gather together and, and study the Old Testament and learn and be reminded and understand that God was with them. See, the nation of Israel, their, their origin comes from, from a man named Abraham who God promised he would one day have many descendants. And, and these descendants, to make a long story short, eventually find themselves in the land of Egypt. And at some point, they grow into a large people. And the king of Egypt, called Pharaoh, saw this group of people who had grown so large and said, if they continue to grow, they will overthrow me. So what should I do? I should enslave them. And he enslaves this people group called Israel. And they cry out to God and ask for help. And God rescues them through 10 miraculous events that, that upset the Egyptian economy. They, they ravage every Egyptian home. And God leads them out of the land of Egypt through a man named Moses. And once they leave Egypt, they come into the Sinai Peninsula, which if you're not familiar with that part of the world, is an arid desert place. And they wander in this arid desert place for many years. 
And many times during those years, they would cry out to Moses, Moses, why have you brought us out here? Did you just bring us here in the desert to die? There are times where we think we had it better when we were slaves in Egypt. And Moses would gather them around and he would share with them stories of their ancestor, Abraham, and tell them how God was with Abraham. He would tell them how God was with Abraham's son, Isaac. He would tell them how God was with Isaac's son, Jacob, and how God was with Jacob's sons, all of them. And he would tell them these stories and remind them that because God was with our ancestors, we can know and believe and understand that God is also with us. He eventually took these stories that he would tell them to encourage them and remind them to keep going, to not give up. He took these stories and compiled them into a book called Genesis, which is what we'll be studying today. So if you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 39. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. We're putting the words up on the screens. And you can also look underneath the seat around you and find a hardback Bible. And you can turn to page 33 in that Bible. That's where you'll find Genesis chapter 39. And if you don't happen to own a Bible that you call yours, take that Bible with you when you leave today. But Genesis 39 is where we'll be studying from. But before we, we do that, I, I would like to do what we do every week before we study together. And that's pray and ask God to help us understand what he would want us to know. My words, my insights, my understanding of the study that I've done this week is very, very limited. And so it is important and imperative that if we're to learn or glean anything from the Bible today, it's imperative that the Holy Spirit helps us to do that. So would you pray with me and ask him to help us? Lord, we're so thankful that we have the Bible as a guide for how you, how you show people how to live, how you, how you teach people who you are, how, how, you, how you remind us the way that you're always with us. I pray that as we study today, the Holy Spirit would help us to see that and understand it. Just as the nation of Israel was encouraged by these stories to keep going and to not give up, that we too would be encouraged from what we learned today to keep going and to not give up because, Jesus, you are worth it. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 39 is a story about a man named Joseph, who is a son of Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And Jacob had 11 sons at this point, and Joseph was his favorite. He was the youngest son, and he loved to give him better gifts than he gave his other sons. In fact, he gives him, the Bible tells us, a coat that is described in different ways by different translations. One translation of the Bible says this coat had really long sleeves, which is weird as a special gift if you ask me. Some translations say that this coat was very silky and fine. Some translations say this coat was a coat of many colors. Perhaps you've heard of that. If you haven't seen the musical Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, that's what this story is about. At any rate, we must understand that no matter what this coat looked like, it was a better gift than Jacob had ever given any of his other sons. Imagine that you have 11 children, you have 10 Etch-a-Sketches, and one iPad. <laughs> and, and you pass the Etch-a-Sketches out to, to your ch 10 children that you don't love as much, and then you save that iPad for your favorite son, and you give it to him, you will have 
one very happy child, and you will have 10 very angry, jealous, bitter, spiteful, hateful children, which is exactly what happened with Joseph and his brothers. And they're so bitter, angry, jealous, spiteful, hateful that they do what brothers do and attempt to kill him. And so they gather together and scheme and plan, and they say, we're going to take Joseph's life. But one of them, the oldest, speaks up and says, I don't think that's that great of an idea. He is our brother. We would break our father's heart. Here's what we should do. We should make a little money off of him and sell him into slavery. (laughs) Then we'll just tell dad that he died. We'll know the secret. He doesn't really have to know, but we shouldn't take his life. So they do just that. They sell him to some slave traders. They rip his beautiful coat off of his shoulders and they dip it in the blood of an animal and they hand it to their father and they say, Father, does this look like Joseph's coat to you? We found it. He's incredibly upset because he realizes it is in fact his son's coat, his favorite son's coat and he cries out, my son has been devoured by a wild beast. He thinks he's been mauled by an animal. All the while, he's in fact been sold into slavery And a man from Egypt, a government official, buys him. And this catches us up to the story in Genesis chapter 39. Starting at verse 1, it says, This Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. This Potiphar is the captain of the guard. And that probably means that he's the chief executioner for the king of Egypt. He bought Joseph from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And when I first read that, that he's in the house of his Egyptian master, he's in slavery, and he became a successful man while enslaved by this Potiphar, I had to deal with some tension in my mind, wondering, how is it possible That Moses looks at Joseph's life and says, even while he was enslaved in Potiphar's house, he was successful. It doesn't seem to connect with me there. And maybe it doesn't connect with you either. And we'll return to that idea in a moment. But keep that in mind. While he is enslaved by Potiphar, Moses says he became a successful man. Verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with Joseph and that the Lord caused all that Joseph did to succeed. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended Potiphar, and he made Joseph overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. It goes on to tell us that he so trusted Joseph that he didn't even know anything that was happening in his house. He gave him so many responsibilities and believed that Joseph could carry all of them out. He wasn't even willing to check in on him because he just believed Joseph was capable and trustworthy enough to do so. Intelligent and trustworthy. Those two things don't often go together, do they? But this man is intelligent and trustworthy. And he sees him and something about him makes Potiphar realize that the Lord is with him. And as I'm reading this, I I begin to wonder, what is it about Joseph that makes Potiphar say, God's with this man. The Lord is with him. He has qualities that are divine. And so I began to wonder, what could it be? Is it possible that Joseph has an aura about him and he shines and he glows? And so Potiphar says, wow, this this guy must be an angel or something. I'm going to make him the manager over all of my household. Is it possible that he's performing 
miracles. Maybe he turns some water into wine like Jesus would one day do. And Potiphar's like, that's a guy I want ruling my household. See, we don't, we don't get any stories about that like him. And, and I would argue that he probably doesn't have an aura. He probably isn't glowing. He's probably not doing miracles. But something about him makes Potiphar look at him and say, the Lord is with him. And I can't help but wonder if it's just because he's using his God-given gifts and natural talents and skills and using them well. Very often, we, we want God to show up in our lives and we want proof that he's with us, whether it's through some miraculous sign, whether it's through the hair standing up on the back of our necks, whether it's some, through, through some strange supernatural thing. We want proof that God is with us and the proof for Potiphar that God was with Joseph was just that he worked hard and did a good job. If we want to prove to ourselves that God is with us, if we want to be reminded that, that he's with us, just do what he's made you to do and do it well. The Bible later on tells us about, about these, these gifts, it calls them, spiritual gifts, qualities that God bestows on people. And everyone has a different set of these qualities or gifts or skills. And the purpose of each one of them is that they would build up God's church. They would build up God's kingdom. Some of us have the gift of being able to serve others easily and not begrudgingly. Some of us have the gift of being willing to give of our time and money easily and not begrudgingly. Some of us have the gift of being able to administrate and manage things easily and not begrudgingly and so that it doesn't tax us to deal with people. That is a gift from God. This is the gift that Joseph had and he just used it, and he used it well. And because he did that, Potiphar looked at him and said, there's something special about this guy. I'm going to make him the ruler, the administrator, the manager over all of my household. Verse 4, Joseph found favor in his sight, and he made him overseer of his house. And from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. He didn't put his eyes on any of the business that came out of his household because he so trusted Joseph. The only things he concerned himself with were the food that he ate. And we learn in just a few verses, his wife. Now Potiphar's job as a, a government official in the kingdom of Egypt, which is quite possibly at this time the most powerful nation in the world. As a government official, his job requires him to leave home and travel. And whereas today we can go on a business trip by leaving Monday and return on Thursday, in those days you went on a business trip, you left January, and you returned in August. And so here's Potiphar's wife left at home all of the time, all alone, with a husband who's off attending other matters, and she's alone in this house all the time with successful and good-looking Joseph. Verse 6 tells us that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It's just something about a Joseph.
The Bible describes only two people in this way. That they're good looking in their face and they're good looking in their body. That's Joseph and his mother, Rachel. Sexiness ran in the genes, I guess. And so, and so here's good looking, muscular, handsome, strong, jawline Joseph who's intelligent and trustworthy. And he's with Potiphar's wife, the desperate housewife, every day. And verse 7 says, after a time... Potiphar's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. What she's not saying is, why don't you come and take a break on the couch next to me? This is a euphemism. She's saying, I want you to come to bed with me. Joseph, nobody has to know about this. We'll both have quite a bit of fun. In fact, do you understand my connections with the king of Egypt? Do you understand that I could get you out of this position of your slavery? Do you understand that I could cause you to be elevated into a higher place in this kingdom? Why don't you come to bed with me, Joseph? But verse 8 says, he refused. And he says to Potiphar's wife, listen, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, and he hasn't kept back anything from me. There's nothing that goes on in this house that I don't have my hands on. There's nothing in this house that my master says is his and not mine except you. Because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now he realizes that the reason he doesn't want to give in to her pleadings is because his master has been so kind to him. His, his master has given him this position in life. And, and no matter what Potiphar's wife could do for him, he refuses. And it's not just because of the natural successes that could come from this affair. It's because he realizes that if he does so, he will be sinning against God. See, there are there are many times where I believe I'm doing something and no one's watching. There are many thoughts I think that are cruel and angry and I think it's okay because no one else can hear them. There are times when I know the truth but maybe I'll twist it just a little bit and it's okay because no one has to know. But the truth of the matter is God always knows. The, the person I am offending, though I might be skirting around offending other people at the end of the day, by my disobedience to him, I still offend God. Joseph understands this. It, it doesn't matter if no one else has to know. It doesn't matter if Potiphar's away and he never knows. It doesn't matter if the other servants in the house never know what's going on. God is going to know because he sees everything. Later on in the nation of Israel's history, we learn about a king named David who becomes one of the most famous and powerful kings in their history. And this David one day lays his eyes upon a woman and he asks her to come into his palace. And to make a long story short, she goes to bed with him. He gets her pregnant and now he's got a problem because she's married. And her husband's been away on a business trip this whole time. And so in order to hide the affair, he has the husband killed. He quickly marries 
her. And eventually a man sent from God comes to David and says, listen, David, God knows what you've done. God knows this wickedness that you've committed against this woman and this man's wife. And in great remorse over that event, David pins one of the most beautiful pieces of literature in the Bible. It's in the book of Psalms. It's the 51st chapter. And in this, this song of confession and remorse, he says, God, it's, it's only against you that I've sinned. I've only done evil in your eyes. Now, we can look at him and say, actually, David, you sinned against this woman as well. You sinned against her husband. You sinned against the whole nation because you broke their trust. But he says, no, it's only against the Lord that I've sinned because no matter who I offend, who I harm, the Lord hurts for them, whether other people can see it or not. So he says, it's only against you, Lord, that I've sinned. And we can think, I can think that I can hide everything from the eyes of others, but the Lord still sees it all. And it hurts him. And he's pained by it. And he wants better for us because he knows the destruction that our disobedience causes us. Joseph understands that. Verse 10, it says, she spoke to Joseph day after day after day after day, every day approaching him, propositioning him, attempting to seduce him, believing that at one point he's eventually going to give in. It says he would not listen to her. Day after day after day she comes and he refuses to listen. Whenever temptation comes our way, as it does day after day after day, we have one of two options to do. We can give into it, as Potiphar's wife has done here. We can embrace it. We can make it a part of our lives. Or we can flee from it, as Joseph does. We can turn away from it and run away from it. There are multiple commands in the New Testament specifically relating to sexual immorality where the, the Bible tells us that we should run away from that. We should flee from it as though we're running from a building that's on fire. Flee from it as though you're running from a plague or a great disease. Run away from it because it can cause damage to families. It can cause damage to your psyche. He says, I made you to live a certain way. And when you, when you live in a way that is incorrectly, it hurts you. And because that hurts us, it hurts God. Verse 11 says, one day though, when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the other men were there in the house, she grabs him. The environment was perfect for him to give in. There, there are times in my life where it seems like the environment is absolutely ripe for me to indulge in all of my desires. It's as though the, the world has aligned itself. The universe has aligned so I can say yes to my pet sins. And it's in those times where I can look at the source and say, I've done nothing to lead me to this place. Joseph had done nothing to lead him to that place except 
go to work. He goes into the house to do his work. He can't leave the house just because none of the other men are there. He has to go to work. And the environment outside of his control is ripe for him to indulge in this sin. I can't help but wonder if all the men were sent out of the house at Potiphar's wife's command. See, there are times where I walk into sin because the environment has been set up outside of my control for me to do it, but there are other times where I create the environment where it's easy for me to sin. There are other times where I make the choices that cause me to fall into disobedience, that cause me to flee from God and run to sinfulness. I would imagine if we were to pull the room again, many of you might say the same thing, that there have been times we've created the environment to make it easier for us to sin, whether it's taking the long way home because we know we'll pass by the house of someone that we should not go see. It's because we've chosen to spend more time on the computer than we probably should have. Maybe we'll we'll say something like, I'll, I'll have this conversation with them because they really need to know what I'm thinking about this. But I swear I'm not going to get hot. I swear I'm not going to raise my voice. And we create the environment to make us walk into sinfulness and disobedience. For Joseph, he's caught unaware. He did not make the choices to lead him into this trap. And verse 12 says, she caught him by his shirt and said, Lie with me. Come to bed with me, Joseph. Nobody's here now. No one's going to see. It's just the two of us. It's going to be okay. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And he leaves the house and she's left there with his shirt in her hand, furious that he refused her once more, furious that she's been denied once again by this Joseph. And so she goes and lays down on her bed and looks incredibly distressed and clutches this shirt. And coincidentally, this just happens to be about the time that Potiphar's returning from a business trip. And he gets home and he sees her laying in bed holding the shirt of another man. And he says, what's this? And she says, that, that man you brought into our house, the one you hired, turning the blame on him, he tried to have his way with me. Potiphar becomes incredibly incensed at this, as you would. And if you remember when I mentioned earlier what his job was, the chief executioner, it is not difficult for him to have Joseph put to death. In fact, he probably could have swung the axe himself. Yet for some reason, verse 20 says, Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, sparing his life, whether it's because he loved him, because he had been such a trustworthy servant, or whether it's because maybe he doesn't completely trust his wife. Whatever reason, he spares Joseph's life. Verse 21, Joseph in prison, but the Lord was with him. And he showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. He's like the head trustee at this jail. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Sound familiar? He's so trustworthy that the jail keeper keeper doesn't even have to check in 
on this prisoner's work. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is this strange tension here that he's enslaved and yet the Lord is with him and the Lord makes him to succeed. Enslaved because his father loved him more than he loved his brothers. And then he meets a woman who loves him more than she loves her husband. And now he's thrown in prison because of that. Through no fault of his own, over and over and over again throughout his life, he's put into these situations where terrible things happened to him and yet Moses tells us that the Lord was with him and he was successful while he was there. Imprisonment to me does not sound very successful and the reason it does not sound successful is because our culture tells us success looks a certain way. Our culture would tell us that success is having lots of stuff, having the better job, having the wife and three and a half kids and the cars and the picket fence and all of the things. It would tell us that success is never having to go through a divorce. It would tell us that success is that your children always speak to you and love you. It would tell us that success is never having any problems with the people around you. But what we see over and over and over again in the Bible is that what our culture would tell us What success looks like is not what God would tell us what success looks like. God would say that success lies in this reality, this fact that God is with us. Over and over and over again throughout the Bible, we read stories of people who are suffering and who are in great turmoil and who are going through difficult circumstances, many of whom are at the lowest points of their life. And the common refrain is that the Lord was with him. The Lord was with her. And because he was with him, because he was with her, they knew they were going to be okay. And as Moses gathers the children of Israel around while they're wandering in the desert, wondering, where is God in all of this dry place? We had it better in Egypt. He says, don't forget, God was with Abraham. Don't forget, God was with Joseph. He was with Joseph when he was a slave in Egypt. You just left slavery under the hand of an Egyptian master in Egypt, and God is still with you here. If they could look back at those stories and see that that was true, how much more so can we, knowing that Jesus has come to rescue us from ourselves and from our sin, how much more so can we look back and say that if God was with Joseph, God will be with me. I spoke with a friend of mine this week who said that they feel as though God is distant from them. They feel as though God is not present with them because they don't experience that presence in ways that they used to. And I began to get angry for a couple reasons. One, because I felt that way before. But but I also got angry because it dawns on me as I'm having this conversation. It's not God's fault that you feel that way. It's not God's fault that I feel like he's distant from me. If I feel like he's not with me, it's not because he's left. It's because I'm looking for him in all the wrong places. I'm looking for him in a good feeling. I'm looking for him in a good experience. I'm looking for him in great things to happen to me. But he's often present the most to us in those times where we couldn't imagine ever seeing him at all. That's when he wants 
to reveal the truth of who he is to us. When we get into those spots when nothing else would truly matter than knowing more of who God is. The only time God has ever chosen to leave one of his children, the only time we read about that happening in the Bible is as his son Jesus is hanging on a cross. And as he's hanging on a cross there, he turns to his father and says, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Why have you chosen to leave me alone? And he didn't get the answer in that moment, but we get to understand now that God forsook and left his son Jesus on the cross so he would never have to leave you and I. Because that moment happened to Jesus, we now get to experience God present with us forever. He never leaves. If I don't think he's here, it's because I'm not looking for him. It has nothing to do with the way I feel. It has nothing to do with what I do or don't do. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done. And all throughout the Bible, we see this truth that no matter what circumstances a person finds him or herself in, God says, I'm with you. There's a man named Paul. We call him the Apostle Paul, which simply means he was a messenger. A messenger of what? He was a messenger of this truth and this love of Jesus. And he would travel around to different cities in the Mediterranean region of the world. And he would start churches when he got to this city. And he would teach them for a while and help them to grow. And he would go on to another city. And when he would do that, he would write letters to his friends in the previous cities, encouraging them and reminding them, don't give up. Keep going. It's all worth it because of Jesus. And because he's continually doing this, starting churches, talking about Jesus, he's eventually thrown into prison for doing not only the right thing, but the best thing, sharing the truth of who Jesus is. And he finds himself in a Roman prison where very often the prisoners were were shackled by their ankles and hung upside down for periods of time. And these prisons were rat infested and there was no latrine in them. And so if they had to use the bathroom, many times they had to go where they would lay their head down at night. And here's this man, Paul, in this prison because he's been telling people about Jesus. And he's visited by a friend who says, Paul, what are you doing here Tell me how you got here. What, what do you think? What's your perspective on life in this place? And he says to this friend, my perspective on life is that you should be joyful in everything that you do. This friend says, how can you say that? And Paul says, it's because I've learned to be content in everything. And I can imagine him turning to that friend and saying, write this down and deliver it to my friends. And we have that here what he may have said, write this down. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance, in good things and in bad things. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. I've learned the secret of having too much. I've learned the secret of having to deal with not having enough. And that secret is that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, we've, we've heard that verse a lot. 
in our culture, in our church culture, that, that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. And we often take it and we apply it to situations to, to help us imagine. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can get a promotion at work through Christ who gives me strength. I can run a mile longer in that my workout through Christ who gives me strength. I can sing a better note through Christ who gives me strength. And I believe we've hijacked the meaning of that verse to apply it to things that don't really matter. If we say that, we have to apply it to everything. So Potiphar's wife now is walking around, I can have Joseph through Christ who gives me strength. No, it specifically means Paul tells us if we understand that he's in a prison cell and he says, I know how to be content whether I have everything or whether I have nothing. And it's because Christ is with me and giving me strength. Doesn't look like what our culture would say success is. When Moses said Joseph succeeded, it was his simple acknowledgement that the Lord was with him that brought him that success, that God viewed as success. It was not freedom from slavery. It was not freedom from prison. It was just simply the presence of God. This man Paul goes on to write another letter to some friends in a city called Corinth. We have a copy of that letter in the Bible. It's called the book of 1 Corinthians. And in this letter he's writing, he tells the story of the nation of Israel as they're wandering through the wilderness. And there comes a moment while they're wandering through the wilderness that they're very thirsty. They've approached a place where there is no oasis and they have nothing to drink. And so they turn to Moses and they say, Moses, have you brought us out here in this desert to die? So Moses turns to God and says, have you brought us out here in this desert to die? And God says, Moses, I want you to turn around and look, there's a rock in the desert. Go up to that rock and hit it with your staff. Moses says, why? (laughs) Just do it, Moses. Just trust me. And he says, okay. So he goes up and he strikes that rock with his staff. And after a moment, he begins to see a, a a little bubble that looks like water. And then pretty soon, coming out of this rock in the middle of the desert is a, a little trickle, some droplets of water. And, and before you know it, it's, it's squirting out of there. And after that, a stream. And eventually, it gushes open like he's opened the fire hydrant in the middle of the street. And now all of them have plenty of water to drink because God miraculously gave them water out of a rock in the middle of the desert. And as Paul's telling them about this story in this letter he wrote, he says that this rock followed them everywhere they went. So the next time they set up camp and they said, Moses, we're thirsty. Have you brought us in the wilderness to die? And Moses turns around to say, God, have you brought us? And there's that weird rock. (laughs) Oh, I guess I know how this works. And he hits it and water comes out and now they can drink again. Paul says this rock followed them everywhere They went. And he says what they didn't realize is something we get to understand, that this rock that followed them everywhere they went and gave them water when they were thirsty was actually Jesus. This rock was Christ. 
So often we're looking for Jesus. We're looking for God in crazy, wild places. We're looking for him in all of the great stuff that life would bring us. We're looking for him in good feelings and good graces from others. But more often than not, he is present with us in the simplest places of life. And all we have to do is turn and drink and accept that he's there, acknowledge that he is with us. I'm gonna finish up in a moment and the band will return, but before they do, I want to bring attention to one last thing that as Joseph and as Paul are imprisoned, the lowest points of their lives, and when it had to be the hardest ever to do the things that they know God would have wanted them to do, when they're at the lowest points of their lives, they still choose to be useful. They still choose to do God's will. Joseph is enslaved, and he works incredibly hard, uses his God-given gifts and skills, and is made the overseer of all of Potiphar's house. He's then imprisoned, and he continues to work incredibly hard and use his God-given skills, and he's made the overseer of all the prison. Paul, the apostle, is imprisoned for preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and while he's in that jail cell, he continues to preach about the good news of Jesus. And when I realized that, I couldn't help but wonder, how many times do I want to give up just because things aren't going my way? How many times do I want to say, no, no, God, I will not do your will because you haven't given me what I wanted you to give me because life hasn't turned out the way that I thought it would turn out. So I'm going to say no to you. How many times have I done that. Joseph and Paul find their greatest usefulness in the lowest point of their lives. Jesus, who walked amongst the earth, performing miracles, healing blind eyes, helping people who are paralyzed to walk, raising people from the dead, performs his greatest act that served all of us while he's suffering on a cross. We discount so often, I know I discount so often my suffering as a period of time where I'm going to have to bear through it and hope that God can use me again afterwards. But it's in those lowest moments that he truly wants to show himself present in us. And we can be most useful to him during those times. So when the band returns in a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to sing praises to Jesus and thank him for all he's done for us. And we'll also have an opportunity to pray to him and ask him to show us that he truly is with us. Help us to see where he is. Help us to see the places I'm not looking for him. I'm going to ask God to take my eyes off of the normal places I look for him and help me to look for him in places where I've never seen him before. I want to invite you to do the same. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful that we have this story of Joseph in the Bible. We have this this story of a man who, in, in the midst of enslavement and imprisonment, finds himself the most successful he'd ever been 
because you were with him. A man who understood that true success does not lie in accomplishments or possessions, but it lies in your presence in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us to realize that you are always with us, that you never leave us. And because of that, no matter what we experience or go through, we can say you have given us success. We thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.